You can tell by your uh, bulletins that we are back in our study, the book of Galatians, on chapter 2, and it's been a while, you know, I'm, so I have to re-look at my sermons and my notes, because, you know, I, I kind of away from this world and kind of acclimate myself back into it. Um, if we had the time this morning, we'll spend more time in the background and review our previous studies, but because of just the many things that are going on today, we just do not have the time. So um, we're just going to jump right in with both feet. Hopefully uh, the Holy Spirit will help you, help me as well, to, to uh, understand uh, this text uh, as we just jump right in. Uh, we're going to read from Galatians chapter 2, and our study will f- focus on verses 13 and 14. Um, but let's read together um, uh, verses 11 all the way to 14. If you would stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Again, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, And not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's keep reading. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, No one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Well, please be seated. Now here we find in this passage um, a very perplexing, uh, very uh, difficult event in the early church where uh, two apostles uh, collide. They are at odds. They are in disagreement. On one side is the apostle Peter and the other is the apostle Paul. 
And this, is occur, this occurred in the church in the city of Antioch. Antioch, during the New Testament period, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was uh, populated by over a half a million people, over 65,000 Jewish people. It was a major, major city. Located about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, so from about here to Fresno area. Now Antioch, the church there, has a very interesting origin, how that church got started. In God's sovereignty, in a roundabout way, Apostle Paul was responsible for this church. Now in an in a unexpected way, back in Acts chapter uh, 8, there was a man named Saul, and he hated Christians. He considered Christians uh, blasphemers. They were um, slandering the name of his God. And so he was hell-bent on persecuting Christians. So he conspired to um, persecute Christians in Jerusalem and all the surrounding cities. And they set their target on Stephen. And Stephen was the first martyr in Jerusalem. And uh, he, after he gave his sermon, he was a deacon. He was a man filled with the Spirit, good repute and wise. He proclaimed the gospel of God's kingdom. And uh, they were infuriated, provoked, and they murdered him. He was the first Christian martyr. And they all laid their cloaks at the feet of Saul, who, is, who will become Apostle Paul. Well, with that persecution, when Stephen was murdered, it um, emboldened all the religious people of Jerusalem. It gave them courage. It emboldened them to intensify persecution among Christians in Jerusalem. So they went after Christians left and right, and, and except for really just the main leaders in the, the, bulk, the core of the church, Christians who were in diaspora, who had, came, who had come to Jerusalem for, for worship, they scattered throughout that region. And yet this was all part of God's sovereign design. As they scattered, as they ran and fled, they fled with the gospel. Right? They left Jerusalem, but they didn't leave the gospel. They took the gospel with them wherever they went. And one of the places they went was to Fresno, right? They went up 300 miles to Antioch. And while they were there, they preached the gospel of God's kingdom. And people were saved. And the Jewish people were saved. But a sizable portion of Gentiles were saved. And this church was planted. And the word came back to Jerusalem. Just the Spirit worked mightily in that city. And a church was established and they need verification from the apostles that this is indeed a true work of God. So in Acts 8, chapter, Acts 8 verse 4, they sent Barnabas, actually Acts 11, 24. It was a good man, a man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. They sent Barnabas as an emissary of the apostles to assist the new believers there. So Barnabas went. And he saw this great and marvelous work that was being done. And he saw that a good portion of this church were Gentile believers. And uh, he knew Apostle Paul was an apostle sent to Gentiles. And he was only about 50 miles away in Tarsus. 
So Barnabas went and said, Hey, Paul, there's a great work in Antioch. Will you come and help us in this church? And so Barnabas was a bridge for Paul to the church in Antioch. And so Paul came with Barnabas to minister at this city. Now, this will tie in with what happened to Barnabas later on. I'm sure some of you already know (coughs) what's coming. So Paul and Barnabas are ministering in this church in Antioch. And it is the first international church. It's the first really truly multi-ethnic church. The church in Jerusalem was still, by and large, I would say maybe 95% plus uh, the congregations were Jewish. Right? Um, the, the gospel went to Gentiles in Acts 8 with Peter's vision. And yet they were still fuzzy in how it was going to actually um, flush out in the life of the church. I would think... You know, I would think that some some thought that Gentiles would establish their own church, and uh, Jewish Christians would have have their church, and the Gentiles, and then you know so on and so forth. And um, the first test case, first reality of this international makeup of this new community community, is seen in uh, the church in Antioch where Jews and Gentiles gathered together to worship God together. So what was um, experienced in Acts 10 with Cornelius being saved, Acts 11, the apostles agreeing that uh, Christians, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are on equal footing. Uh, It was all theoretical. It was all theology and doctrine. It was kind of ivory tower. Uh, the reality, the flashpoint is here in Galatians 2, um, where it is really being lived out, practiced in this church. Now, uh, there's, there's this thing called growing pains, right? Whether in, in our lives when we were young, we grew and you know, we'd have, we would feel pain as our, as our bodies, bodies would grow, whether in a, in a family or in a company or especially in a church, there are pains that come with growth. And so here uh, we see uh, a key incident uh, uh, and they're experiencing their growing pain. Go to verse 12 and Paul describes the scene. Before certain men came from James, he, Cephas, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came... He withdrew (coughs) and separated himself. So Peter was an Orthodox Jew, man committed to the Old Testament, and yet he had a vision from God in Acts 10 where this uh, sheet came down with all these animals, clean and unclean, three times. And three times he said, Lord, I will not eat unclean animals. And God said, do not call what God has made unclean. And it was God giving Peter a vision to accept Gentiles uh, fully and firmly into the church. And so with that, he went to Cornelius, preached the gospel. Him and his family spoke in tongues as an evidence of their inclusion into the family of God. So Peter well knew uh, that Jewish Christians were welcome in the church. So he would eat with them. He would dine with them in the church. And this was not just regular eating, 
you know, as we do after church or an evening meal at someone's home, this was most likely uh, the love feast that accompanied a communion. Uh, this, these were house churches. These were intimate gatherings. So every time they gathered together, they would partake in the cup and the bread in the cup. And afterwards, they would have this feast that were for believers only. And they would remember Christ and, and express their devotion and love for one another. So Peter was, you know, sitting with them and eating with them. And it was not just what they ate. You know, maybe for the first time, Peter ate pork. You know, he had some bacon and spam. He had some Vienna sausages. For the first time, he had crab and lobster and shrimp. And he's like, man, I was missing out. Like, I'm glad, glad for the gospel, right? It's not just what they're eating, but who he was eating with. He was eating with Gentiles. And now... It's, it's, you might be surprised to find out that nowhere in the Old Testament does God forbid this. Right? In the Old Testament, you read God's instructions for the Jewish people, and His really command is summed up in, in love. He commands the Israelites to love non-Jewish people, to love Gentiles, non-Israelites. They were not to be hated or despised. They were to be treated almost on a plane of equality. Uh, Deuteronomy 10.19, Israelites were commanded to love non-Israelites, Gentiles, these strangers. Exodus 23.9, they were to sympathize with them. You are not to despise or oppress a sojourner because you were once sojourners. You were once aliens in Egypt. And so we see um, in the scriptures how David had trusted warriors like Uriah and Ittai who were Gentiles and not Jews. Um, in um, uh, 2 Samuel 18.2, Aruna, the Jebusite, was a respected leader and a resident in the city of Jerusalem. In Judges 1, the Kenites were treated almost as brothers uh, of the Jewish people. In fact, Leviticus 25.47 says that even uh, Jewish people could become slaves to non-Jews. There were laws to protect non-Israelites. A Gentile servant must not be defrauded of his wage. If you're a Jewish uh, a member of the Israelite nation, you are not to defraud or take advantage of a Gentile. They were in fact allowed to even sacrifice at the temple. God calls them, in Jeremiah 29.7, to even offer prayers for the Gentile people, pray for their nations, and pray for the leaders of these Gentile countries. Right? So, you know, that, that simplistic saying, you know, God loves the sinner, hates the sin. You know, it's simplistic, but it's true. You read the Bible, and I mean, like, it is kind of simplistic, but in its core, its essence, Old and New Testament God hates the sinner, a sin, ah, long day yesterday. God hates the sin, but God loves the sinner. So what God was saying is don't commit the sins of the Gentiles. Right? They're known to be very um, immoral, right? full of idolatry and uh, idolatrous practices. He forbade the Jewish people from engaging in these sinful practices. But nowhere does he call them to separate themselves in this way. You know, do not intermarry with them. 
I do not engage in their idolatry, their religion, but there is no sense of, of condemning them and disassociating themselves with them and despising them in any way. Well, you know, religious people, they always have to take it a step too far. Right? They always have to ramp it up and they're never satisfied with God's law as it is. They have to outdo each other and make themselves more holy than the next person. So they had all this oral tradition, you know, the Talmud, and they said it, it came all the way from the time of Moses. It was their way of co-opting authority from Moses. There is no real historical validity to this. But they said these were oral traditions passed down, Moses down on. And for them, they equated the Talmud, the oral traditions, as equal in authority and sometimes superseded the authority of the Old Testament. And based on Talmudic teaching, they justified their uh, hatred, animosity, their disdain for non-Jews. And that, that was a New Testament culture that became... Um, the cultural norm. It became almost a social norm for Jews and Gentiles to relate in this way. Um, in John chapter 4, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John, he makes a side comment there in parentheses, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And that was because the Pharisees' influence, right? Their Talmudic oral tradition teaching that Jews are not to associate with Jew, uh, Samaritans whatsoever. In John 18, these uh, uh, Pharisees, they're conspiring to murder Jesus. A man they know who is innocent, a man they know is from God. They're conspiring to murder him. And yet when, G when Pilate, uh, is meeting in his uh, house, they will not enter into a Gentile's house. You see that hypocrisy? They're committing murder, and yet they're all proud of how they will not defile themselves by entering a Gentile home. When in actuality, that's not even in the Bible. That's just oral tradition. It was so ingrained, they took it as law, but it was not in the Bible. In Acts 11, uh, 1, 2, and 3, and Peter went to Cornelius' home and preached the gospel. When news went back to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, the, the, the Judaizers, they were upset with Peter. You know what we heard? That you went into an uncircumcised home and you ate with them, which is forbidden according to the Talmud, according to their tradition, their oral tradition. Um, this is not again in the Bible. It's their oral tradition. It, uh, that was... That was the context. So Peter, um, reared in this kind of society, this culture, um, knew that it was, it was not in the Bible, it's our tradition, and he knew God allowed, God opened this door for Jews and Gentiles to fellowship together, and so he freely dined, again, not just what he ate, but with whom he ate, Gentiles. And yet when certain men from Jerusalem Carrying the authority of the apostle James came, he withdrew himself, right? He slowly and, and assuredly separated himself with Gentile Christians, and he stopped fellowshipping with them, dining with them against uh, the truth of the gospel. Now, verse 12 tells us, uh, we talked about this weeks ago, 
the, the heart behind this behavior, his motivation, right, the reason for his him behaving this way. He was afraid, fearing the circumcision party. It was the fear of man. We did a whole sermon on, on fear of man. Uh, fear of man is a biblical terminology. It is a snare. When you fear man, you do not fear God. Fearing man is idolatry. Our favorite idol is ourselves. We want people to like us, accept us. We want to please people for ourselves. So our greatest idols are not uh, figures or figurines or like temples or ideas. Our, our idols are usually people that we love, esteem, and respect. And uh, we talked about why would Peter fear these men? He was an apostle of Christ. Or most likely these men were intimidating figures. Men who knew the Bible, who knew the scriptures, who had letters with them. Uh, they had a long resume. They had uh, scholarship behind them. Peter was a fisherman, right? And so he wasn't a book guy. He fell asleep reading books. Uh, he fell asleep during the synagogue. Uh, he would ditch the synagogue. He, didn't, he wasn't particularly a good student. And all these men who are well-versed in the Old Testament, even in the oral tradition, they're able to just quote verses uh, from their memory. He respected them. And instead of lining himself with the gospel, he was, a, he was intimidated. So he withdrew himself from the Gentile Christians. Now, Paul sees this. And, um, you know, Paul, I think like he kind of encountered it. That's kind of how you see it's set up here. Paul didn't just wait around observing this. Maybe he was away for a while on a missionary trip. He comes back. And he saw Peter acting this way, and uh, the four results. Uh, in verse 14, here's an extended uh, explanation of what occurred. Verse 14, when I saw that their conduct, and it's the Judaizers, the circumcision party, plus Apostle Peter, and he says their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And here is the four, um, four results. Uh, First of all, verse 13, they acted hypocritically, right? So Paul knew Peter. Uh, they had talked. Paul knew. Everyone knew Peter's confession, what he believed, right? what he stood for. And so the way he was acting and what he believed, there was a disconnect, right? There was a duplicity. There, was a, there wasn't consistency, integrity there. He was a hypocrite, the Greek word for a, a, a play actor, a mask. So Peter was wearing a mask. He was acting hypocritically along with all of them. They knew the gospel, but they were going against what they believed to be true. Not only that, they weren't walking straight. Orthopedeon, right? So I saw an ad today, ortho mattress, right? Help keep your back straight. Right? Orthodontist, they keep your teeth straight. I'll stop there, right? <laughs> what, what other orthos are there? Um, so straight and put on is walk, right? So they're not walking along the line of the gospel. From the gospel, there's a truth that comes out from the gospel. There's, a, there's the gospel and there's an implication from the gospel that pervades our Christian lives. Gospel is true and this line tells us how to live our whole Christian walk. There's a direct implication from the gospel to our parenting, 
to our relationship with our wife, wife and husband, to our work, to our government, our self-identity, right, to our sins, to media, right, to philosophy, to other religions, to evangelism, to apologetics, like all these disciplines in the world have are directly related to the gospel. And gospel has one direct way how we are to relate, understand our lives. There's one line. And so our job, our responsibility, dependent upon Christ, is to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Walk in a manner worthy of Christ. So in light of Christ, we have to walk straight. And instead of walking straight, Peter walked crookedly, right? Peter transgressed that line, walked against that line, and he crossed it. Not only, therefore, verse 11, he stood condemned. I mean, he stood condemned. Not condemned, verse 11, in the sense of losing his salvation, but condemned in the sense that of being guilty of sin by taking a position that he knew it was wrong. It wasn't out of faith and conviction he was, he was doing this. It was out of fear. Right? It was out of cowardice. It was out of love of man, pleasing people rather than pleasing God. Right? So he was condemned by his own conduct. He didn't have a clear conscience. Right? He was going against what he knew was to be true. And the fourth result was even Barnabas. And so you take note of those words there by Paul. Right? Like even Barnabas was taken away, right? Taken away, verse 13, so that even Barnabas was, was led astray by their hypocrisy. This, this acting was so um, uh, convincing. Right? They were such good actors and actresses that even and Barnabas was led astray. And so here is that whole like coming full circle. Barnabas was the one when he saw Gentile Christians, invited Paul to come and minister with him in this church. And, the, and Barnabas, who was the bridge, is the one who turns against Paul and the Gentile Christians. So Paul could not stand it any longer. Right? He could not stand any longer. He confronted Peter publicly. Right? He confronted him because the gospel was at stake. This is not a secondary matter or a tertiary matter of, of of theology or doctrine. This was not a moral failure uh, for Peter, where you know Paul would co- confront him one-on-one privately in church discipline. No, as a leader, as an apostle of Christ, he was undermining the gospel of Jesus. He was threatening the, the very fabric of this Christian church. So Paul confronts him head-on publicly, and he confronts him with the gospel of Christ. Now, there are two issues here, and I would say there are always two issues whenever you deal with sin, right? Always two issues. There's a surface issue, and there is a deeper issue, right? The surface issue and the deeper issue. The surface issue here is racism, right? It's racism. Philip Reichen said one of the reasons the incident at Antioch was so ugly was its racial overtones. The issue was between Jews and Gentiles, right? So there was this racial overtones, ethnic overtones, culture, right? Um, That divided the church into two groups. We would all agree racism is a major issue in our world. 
It's not like what's going on in Acts or in, in Antioch. What's going on in Galatians 2? Racism began the fall of Adam and Eve, and it continues to this day. And it's a major problem in our world, in our culture, in our society, in our own lives. Racism is not out there trying to get in. Racism is inside our hearts. No one here is immune from racism, from taking pride in our own ethnicity, our own culture, right? our, our racial makeup, and at the same time, using that as a leverage to condemn others, to despise, denigrate, and then look down on others, to judge others. This is in the heart of every single person in the world. Right? And so the world, especially our culture, is hypersensitive to this issue. In our society, probably the greatest sin that you can commit is the sin of racism. They'll tolerate all kinds of blasphemy, immorality, impurity, but you say anything that's racist. There isn't a hint of racism in your attitude or conduct. Flags go up. And this is one area where even the most ardent uh, atheists would say racism is wrong. They might even say racism is, is sinful, is sin. So by and large, our society condemns it as wrong, but they have no answers. Right? In a non-religious world, in a secular postmodern world, their answer is education. Right? We need to educate people, and that will get rid of racism. So they spend hundreds of millions of dollars, and you school teachers, you spend many hours in classrooms, trying to educate people and to like limit. But all that does is it's like redecorating the outside. You can't change the human heart through education and information. Racism is not outside going in. It's inside coming out. All you're doing is behavior modification. All you're doing is replacing idolatry. You shouldn't be racist because it's not good for yourself. right? It's not good for your family. It's not expedient for your future success. People won't like you if you're a racist. It's all self-centered. All it's doing is just outside redecoration, like stapling fruit on a tree that is dead. So the non-religious world has no answers. The religious world all the more has no answers because if anything causes racism, it's religion. Right? I mean, who are the ones that are promoting this, this act by Peter? It's Judaizers, these are people who love the law. They love the Old Testament. They're zealous for um, the law of God, zealous for legalism, for religion. So there is no remedy in the world. There is no remedy in religion. At best, it is external. And at best, it is short-lived. And... uh, Maybe you're suffering through that right now. Right? You see intergenerational sin. You see racism in your parents. And you, it disgusts you. And that's the last thing you want to be. And yet, at the crevices of your heart, you find just deep-rooted racism. Pride in your own ethnicity, your own culture. Your, pride in yourself, your, 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 your family. At the same time, condemnation and judgment towards others. And you dare not say that publicly, they're not even mentioning it, but you see that in your heart, and all the books you read, there's no answer, all the devotional work, all the religious rich duties that you perform, I have no answer for this, and you are at, at a loss as well. 
Well, the Bible has the answer. Right? The Bible has the answer. The Bible tells us we must not treat it simplistically. Right? We must understand that the law is not the answer. Right? We know the law is not the answer because that's not what Paul does here. Paul doesn't say, hey, Peter, you're being racist. Stop it. Right? Jesus said, love one another. Right? So let's hold hands. Right? Sing Kumbaya and love one another. Stop it. That's not what Peter does because Peter understands law has no transformative powers in anyone, even the Christian. Right? So we must not run to the law to rescue us from the sin of racism in our hearts. That is not what Paul did. Paul understood the surface sin of racism, but he doesn't deal with the surface sin and do behavior modification. It doesn't load him with guilt. It doesn't coerce him. It doesn't like give him a pragmatic reason why not to be racist. He tackles the deeper issue, the heart issue, at the level of motivation, which is the issue of justification which is the gospel level, right? salvation level, justification level. John Calvin said, it is foolish to defend what the Holy Spirit has condemned by Paul. This was no human business matter, but involved the purity of the gospel. The gospel was at stake here, and the gospel was and is the solution. Because Peter revealed what was driving, Paul revealed what was driving Peter's uh, racism. It was fear. Fear of man. So you will find that in every sin, there is a sin behind that sin. There is something that motivates you at the heart level, right? Um, Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of your life. So every action is created twice. It's created secondly in your behavior, your conduct, your attitude, your speech. But it's previously created in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls, in in our hearts at the motivation level. So for Peter, he acted hypocritically. He walked against the truth of the gospel. He was acting as a racist because of fear in his heart. And you can't deal with fear in the heart of the law. You deal with fear or or pride or anger. You deal with unbelief, which are all the root causes of all our sins. And only thing that has the power to get to that level is the gospel of Christ. It is a truth of our justification that we are accepted by God Not by our ethnicity, not by our resume, not by our works, not by our achievements, not by our gender. We are accepted by God, by grace, through faith alone. And that is the truth that liberates us from fear and that over time liberates us from racism, right? From all the the sins of this world, right? So that's, that's Paul's MO here. He understands the way to freedom from fear is the truth that Peter, we are accepted by God, not because we're Jews 
And not because we're obedient Jews. Peter, we are accepted by God, by grace through faith alone. Verse 15 of chapter 2, and this is next week's sermon. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. God accepts us by grace through faith alone. Right. Let's not twist the gospel, which is reverse the gospel. Peter, we must not put works or our ethnicity, right? Or anything else, our identity, our gender before the gospel. It's gospel first, right? Gospel is to be central. And so Paul preaches the gospel to Peter to liberate his heart from fear so that he would desist from his hypocritical behavior, right? This is the way out of pride, right? way out of ego, way out of the feeling of view of superiority, right? and then condemning others for of being inferior. 220, I've been crucified with Christ. There's next week's sermon again, maybe in two weeks. Right? It's Christ who lives in me. Life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if Justification were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Died for no purpose. So an issue of pride in your heart, how do you deal with it? You remember grace. You remember the gospel, and the gospel says, God loves you. God accepts you. And it's by grace. And grace tells us it's undeserved favor, that we did nothing to earn or deserve this love of God. Therefore, pride, as Milton Vincent said, wilts at the atmosphere of grace. How can we have pride in our hearts when the gospel is present and the gospel tells us, reminds us, imputes to us the grace of God? Pride wilts. And we see all things as rubbish. And the result is, right? The result is we stop boasting in our ethnicity and we stop condemning others right, for their their background. Right. I just want to close by reviewing this one more time. Right. I close this by saying this is um, not just Paul but the whole New Testament and not just the New Testament as we studied last Sunday all the way from Exodus that this is the Bible. Right. It's always indicative to imperative. Right. The, the gospel, the Bible is not outside in, but inside out. And it's not just about racism, but all sin issues. Right. The gospel deals with the surface issue and the deeper issue. Right. So whether it's impurity, immorality, whether it's theft or lying or cheating or slander, accusing one another, refusing forgiveness, refusing to forgive, it is wrath or malice, whatever sins, right? That's a surface issue. The gospel deals with it. I mean, I don't have the time here. Colossians 3, right? Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So Paul deals with these surface issues. He doesn't gloss over them. He doesn't skip them. You're committing immorality? Stop. Put it to death 
mortify it because Christ is risen. He is raised. He is seated at the right hand of God. And you are, you are in him and he is in you. Therefore, walk according to the calling that you have received. Right? Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of Christ. In your speech, your attitude, your behavior, walk in light of the gospel. The surface issues, Paul deals with it. At the same time, the Bible deals with us at a deeper level. Wants to deal with our sins, um, the sin behind the sin, right? the, the, the unbelief behind. So that's why, this is why it's so important, guys, because whenever there's sin, the Bible wants us to make it vertical, not horizontal. When we sin, we only see the horizontal. What I've done to you, what you did to me, what Pat did to Alice, that's all, right? Alice sees, right? But what God wants all of us to see is, first and foremost, it's a vertical issue with God, and secondly, a horizontal issue. And you say, how is this a relationship with, how is this a relationship, vertical relationship with God? It's because the deeper sin issue is unbelief. It's a denial of the gospel. Right? Denial of what we know to be true. That we are accepted by God, by grace through faith alone. That is the first sin that we commit in our hearts. Just like Eve, when she saw the fruit, she said in her mind, right? This is good, pleasing to the eye, good for gaining wisdom. And then she ate. Eating of the fruit was a result of her unbelief in her heart. Even if she didn't eat the fruit, she already sinned, sinned into the world because her mind was at enmity with God. She had pride in her heart. Likewise, the sin is in the heart level and it's always directed towards God. It's vertical and then horizontal. So the Bible deals with the surface issue, but we must not stop there because then we'll just look good outwardly and we're like dead men's bones inside. The Bible wants to deal with us vertically, our sins before God. And I know it's hard to get there, but when you go there, it's, it's difficult, it's humbling, it's humiliating because it's just sin and only sin. But then you will find grace. By faith in Christ, you'll find the mercy of God. You'll find that Jesus is waiting for you and he has pierced arms and feet to prove that those sins were crucified and those sins were paid for and he has forgiven you already. And the same sins that break your heart, Christ is there and he'll melt your heart by his love. He'll remind you of his love, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. That is why the gospel takes us there. And that is why Paul deals with racism with a heart issue by preaching the gospel. And, and verses 15 to 21, I believe, is, is Paul's verbatim quote, what he told Peter. He preached the gospel to Peter so that he might repent. Right? And he might take off that mask. He might walk straight. That he might stand, he might not stand condemned. And that he might, by his repentance, turn Barnabas back to walking with Christ. And that's what we must do as well. Right? And that is what we are endeavoring to do every time we open up the scriptures. Right? We want God to deal with us, not just the surface sins. Right? Don't do this and do this. We want the gospel to deal with the sin issues of the heart and see how we're sinning against God, denying the gospel. And through that, like he'll do what the law cannot do. He'll melt our hearts. He'll transform the inner man. 
and uh, he'll get all the glory, right? Because the power of God that saved us is the continuing power of God to those who are believing. As you continue to believe the gospel, you'll continue to save us, grow our faith, and transform us to the likeness of Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you and we just bless your name. Lord, we, we just, we're just here and we just marvel at the cross. We just thank you. We humble ourselves and our flesh wants to work, but our faith tells us to rest. Our faith tells us to behold the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And in those sins, we see our sins. You took away our sins. We want to gaze upon Jesus. We want to abide in him. We want to trust and hope and long for him. For he is our hope. He is our salvation. And he is the one that will sanctify us and drive away our fears, our pride, our our self-centeredness, our unbelief. And he will he is the one who will produce in us the fruit of the Spirit in keeping with repentance. God, we just thank you, God, for your mercy in uh, allowing us to hear the gospel and to understand and see the beauty of it for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.